Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. In this podcast series, we talk to academics and students about their work at the university and beyond. And just to mark your card as well, we'll be running a series of specials throughout September for new and returning students about the return to campus and all the plans we have to make sure it's a safe and enjoyable environment. My guest this week is David Nash, Professor of Physical Geography in the School of Environment and Technology. David has over 30 years of research experience and recently his work on the origin of giant sarsen stones at Stonehenge made headlines worldwide. David, thanks for coming on. We'll talk about that research in a little bit that you're, you're extremely experienced, over 100 publications. Let's go back a little bit, though, to the young David first. Where did your interests in what you ended up coming to specialise come from? That's a very good question. Um, I think I've always been interested in the, the natural environment and the geography of the world. So um, even as a small child, um, I used to love sitting and looking through the, the Times World Atlas that my parents had and wondering what places looked like and what people were doing there. So I always had this real fixation with, you know, I guess what the world looked like. And I had a, um, an opportunity when I was going to choose courses at university to take up a, a joint honours course in geology and physical geography. And that really kind of combined my interest in in understanding about places and landscapes but with um, an understanding about what might be influencing the shape of those landscapes so really for me that sort of combination of, of looking at both geology and also then physical geography um, worked really well so that 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 kind of um, fascination um, has, has really stayed with me. Yeah. Um, so so you, you, you work at the University of Brighton now. How have you uh, arrived at this point? What's your path been? So I, um, I, I did my undergraduate degree at uh, Sheffield University and I then um, had the opportunity to stay on at Sheffield to do um, PhD research. And I did that, um, I suppose I was very fortunate at the time, I was able to spend nine months in, in Botswana and South Africa um, looking at a project on the origins of um, some fossil drainage systems um, out in the Kalahari Desert. So I guess that really allowed me to like, combine my, my interests in um, landscape evolution over long, long periods of time. Um, and really, when I finished that, that PhD, a job offer came up at, at Brighton. Um, I'd worked for a year after my PhD at Sheffield um, in a tutorial role and then this job advert came up at the university. Um, I'd never been to Brighton before my interview um, and, and came down and this was way, way back in 1993 on a, a foggy night in February, um, wandered along the seafront in thick fog and thought, I love this place, this is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, and I've not left. Yeah. What's kept you here? <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think the thing that I mean, I there's a lot of real, real nice things about working at, at the University of Brighton. I mean, first of all, I, I work with a fantastic bunch of colleagues, and that's hugely important for, for job satisfaction. Um, the city itself is a is a great place to to be, um, but also we have I mean we have a nice bunch of students generally. They're, they're usually very grounded and they're here because they really want to be and they're really passionate about learning about subjects. And 
And I guess it's that combination of things that make um, working at the university um, really good fun. Where did you come from originally then? So home originally is um, from Essex. I am um, Essex man. Um, so south, the, the southern part of Essex. Um, I, I was quite surprised that I'd never been to Brighton before. We used to do day trips down to the south coast, but I think the closest that we got would have been Hastings. Right. Um, so never really knew this this section of um, the southeast of England at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to have you now. Uh, let's talk about your teaching role um, that you have at the university. What do you, um, what are the, the modules that you teach on? So the main, the main things I teach on, I teach at um, all three undergraduate levels. So I kick off our uh, fundamentals of, of physical geography um, module. So if there's any new first years coming along, you'll see me pretty much in week one for the first block of that course where we, we look at kind of introductory um, landscapes. We look at how things like plate tectonics influence landscape and we look at how climate shapes landscape. And then that then feeds into the second and third years. So I, I teach um, a very popular uh, climate change module in the second year. So one of my, my other interests is in long-term climate variability. So. I teach um, that module and then also looking at environmental change over longer timescales. We run a really nice module called Ice Age Earth, where we look at how um, climate and environmental change has played out in the past. And then in the the final year, I I teach on a a variety of modules, not one in particular. We're going to come to talk about climate change in a bit. How would you sort of describe your personal teaching approach? Because everyone's very different. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I I quite like to, I suppose, in a sense, when I was an undergraduate, the thing that I absolutely hated were lecturers who were disorganised. I like to know, like, from the start of a session, where we were going. So I liked a really good idea of what the structure was, why I was bothering listening to this and engaging with it. So I think my, um, my ethos is very much around kind of setting the framework for, for what we're going to cover in a session so that students know, you know, know they know what it's going to be about and they know, um, I guess, really where they're going to be at the end of the session. And then the other thing I do like to do is I like to use as many real world examples as possible to illustrate teaching because I think everything can otherwise can be really abstract and if you're talking about you know landscapes in other parts of the world that people may not have been to um, you know illustrate it with plenty of, um, of visuals and, and also um, information from latest research papers particularly in the second and third year you know I think exposing students to what's going on and what the real cutting edge of knowledge is is really really important so I guess that's my my ethos engage students you know let them know what the the main aims of the session are but very much try to engage them in latest ideas i know that in you know a normal non-covid world i don't know how things are going to work going forward but lots of field trips involved and and trying to get out and about in the in the local area as well and it's such a uh, a, i guess before you came down here i mean you must it's since you got here you must feel like you know it's such a rich landscape of places to go and visit to to use in your work yeah, that's right. I mean, so so within our so I teach on our, um, our geography degrees and also our environmental sciences program. 
And that's one thing that we do throughout a whole range of modules is, is use the, the local environment initially for things like day visits, so sort of day trips, site visits, and so on. But then also we run um, a whole series of, of UK and overseas um, field courses. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give some examples. I mean, sort of things that I do, say, for example, locally. Um, so when you, you think of Brighton, you'll think of the coastal setting. You'll also think, hopefully, of chalk cliffs. Um, and we visit a number of um, ice age sites along those cliff lines. So even though the south coast of, of um, the UK wasn't glaciated during the last ice age, um, it was uh, affected by periglacial processes. It was living cold here. We were probably 100 kilometres south of a very, very large ice sheet. Um, and this would have been around about 18,000 years ago. So there's all sorts of um, evidence of permafrost and um, periglacial processes, and they're still preserved in the landscape. So we, we take students out for a couple of day trips to, to get hands-on experience of looking at those kinds of um, sediments and landforms. I mean, it's, it's quite an amazing thing to stand, you know, by uh, the Asda supermarket at Brighton Marina um, and think that 18,000 years ago, what you would have been in would have been, a, you know, a permafrost landscape. Um, so I think it really brings it home, the sort of the magnitude of climate change when you can get out into the, the local environment and see those sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very strong department and loads of talented academics and researchers um, working within it. Why should people come and study at the University of Brighton? Ooh, I, th I think, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's, it's partly about our, our expertise. So clearly, you know, we've got people who are all experts in their field, very, very strong publications, profiles, very good record of bringing in money from a variety of sources to do uh, their research. And I think more importantly, they then feed that work back into, into what, you, what you learn. So um, I think it's, you know, it's the, the research activity is really important. I think the other thing that, that certainly from my experience distinguishes Brighton from a number of other institutions is we have pretty much an open door policy. So um, we don't have office hours like many other departments do. So you can, you know, in, in my case, I encourage students just to drop an email, make an appointment, and we can we can have a conversation about whatever they want to. If it's really urgent, come and knock on the door. Um, you don't see that in, in every institution. So I think that's a real, you know, a real bonus. It's not only are people um, passionate about their research and their teaching, but also they've got a lot of time for students. Yeah, let's get stuck in some of that research. Um, you've made worldwide headlines recently with your work on Stonehenge, identifying where those giant sarsen stones used to, used to build it came from, uh, resolving a mystery which has been thousands of years in the making. Um, and I imagine it was a, it's a years of, 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 you know, really hard work and, and probably some quite patient work as well. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think... Um... The, the work we've done at Stonehenge really is, is a kind of a culmination of work that I've been doing since I'm the member of sound very, very old here. Since about 1994, um, when I first started working on um, a rock type, which is called, technically it's called Silcrete, um, it's the same stone that Stonehenge is mainly built from, but I was looking at this material in Botswana. Um, where we get similar types of stone. 
Um, and I guess over the years, what I've, what I've done is I've built up, built up a, a series of studies really looking at what this stone is like, um, what it looks like under the microscope, how it formed, but very importantly, what influences its chemistry. And the work at Stonehenge has used um, information about the chemistry of the rock to effectively try to map whereabouts the sarsen stones came from. Where the, the method really builds out from is, is work again that I've done in, in Southern Africa and, and it's work linking in with, with archaeologists. So the big feature of this has been it's been um, a really nice example of interdisciplinary working. So what we've got is we've got you know physical geographers, we've got geologists, we've got archaeologists, we've got statisticians all working together on on a single project. And, and it's very similar to, to other work I've done in the Kalahari where we had very different problems but what we were able to do there was in that case was identify whereabouts the stone that was used to make stone tools from came from that was also concrete and it was really through piloting that method in Botswana that we figured out well actually yeah you can use the chemistry of this stone to say some quite powerful stuff um, and it would have been probably it's about seven or eight years ago that I really first started having conversations about possibly applying this technique at Stonehenge and um, took a few goes to try and get some money to do the work. Um, but yes, as you, as you say, we've, we've been able to come out with some, I mean, probably, I wouldn't say not necessarily surprising work because what we've actually done is we've, we've demonstrated that, that conventional wisdom probably was reasonably accurate. But what we've been able to do was to, to pinpoint um, for the first time, an area where, where we think that the, the big sarsen stones came from. And where was that area? So it's uh, an area, um, if anybody knows the sort of area around Stonehenge, so Stonehenge is reasonably near Salisbury, it's, out, it's on Salisbury Plain. Um, to the north of that, there's an area of chalk hills, and they're called the Marlborough Downs. Um, quite close to the, the very nice market town of, of Marlborough. And people for a long while have assumed, well, the sarsen stones probably come from there, but purely on the basis that there are lots of large sarsen stones in that area. No other reason of mm. the fact that, you know, there are big grey sarsen stones there, there are big grey sarsen stones at Stonehenge. It's the closest place they must have come from there. Yeah, right. um, and, and as it turns out, they were, you know, absolutely correct. Um, I guess I, I kind of thought, well, we can't always, I suppose it's, a, it's a, a, a lesson in, you can't always assume these things because if you, I don't know whether you know about um, Stonehenge, but Stonehenge actually has two different sets of stones. So it has the big sarsen stones, and then it also has a series of smaller stones there, which are referred to as the blue stones. And these are different rock types, and these are the ones that have been previously traced to uh, the western part of Wales. And, and our viewpoint when we went into this was, well, if people are bothered sufficiently to transport stones 200 kilometers, um, why wouldn't they possibly carry even really, really large sarsens over long distances? Yeah. So we didn't want to go in with, you know, cutting out opportunities and cutting out possibilities without actually going and doing some, some proper rigorous testing of mm. those ideas. And, and I guess what we were able to do was to, to knock out some of the, the more distant sites and then through our sampling methods, able to pinpoint ones that were more local to the site. So I guess, you know, yeah, conventional wisdom's fine, but I don't think you should always let it cloud the way that you, you know, design a scientific project.
maybe they got a bit lazy after going all the way to Wales and just went local instead. Were you half expecting? We we. <laughs> Were you, yeah, half, were you half hoping it was going to be, you were going to throw up something from, from another 200 miles away? Well, we, I mean, we sampled, so sarsen stones occur all across southern Britain. So mm. if you drew a line from kind of um, North Norfolk across to Devon mm. and then went south of that line, there are pockets of sarsen stones all over the place um, south of that line. So we sampled from Norfolk and Suffolk and Essex and Kent uh, Sussex, there's an awful lot of sarsen stones in the Brighton area. That's really where our, you know, we did quite a lot of pilot work in the Brighton area. And then they're also in Devon. Uh, the biggest clusters are in Wiltshire. Um, you know, and, and no reason to think why, you know, why they might not have been brought from some of those more distant places other than the absolutely enormous effort it would have taken to mm. shift 30 tonne stones. Um, um, but even then, I mean, even though they're only, I say, only coming from 20 or so kilometres to the north of the site, still moving, you know, you think of the human endeavour involved in shifting a yeah a 30-tonne boulder. I mean, um, how? how do you do that, at that all that time ago? <laughs> how? <laughs> well, there's, yeah, well, there's, there's, there's um, if, if you look at the, the discipline of archaeology, you know, I'm not an archaeologist, but mm-hmm. it's been great pleasure, you know, working with working archaeologists. With them, I imagine, it's a field yeah. of archaeology, which is which is referred to as experimental archaeology. Mm-hmm. So this is where um, people try out possible technologies, and they've they've had a go at this for some of the large, you know, mock-up boulders at Stonehenge. Um, there was a long idea that perhaps they, the long-standing idea that maybe they use rollers of some sort. I think that's been largely poo-pooed I suppose is the right way to put it and now the idea is they probably drag them on on sleds of some sort um, possibly over wetted surfaces possibly during um, winter periods when the ground was frozen Um, but regardless I mean you know getting stuff moving I mean getting them out of the ground in the first place because these stones would have been partly buried you know you've got to dig them up Mm. you've got to get them down slopes up big slopes um across rivers <laughs> it's yeah. not a no it's it's um quite bewildering to think that people would have you know had the will to do that yeah you you needed the core from one of the stones didn't you to actually do this research and i think i've read that it was missing for a while yeah no that's absolutely correct so the so stonehenge as we see it today um is actually the product partly of conservation so over the years stones that were leaning have been pushed back upright stones that have fallen over have been re-erected and it's all to sort of protect the monument but also to improve the um, experience for the visitor so you could actually be able to interpret what the monument would have looked like uh, when you visit it and um, there was work in in 1958 um, that uh, three stones that had fallen over. And these were stones that, uh, if you imagine Stonehenge, it's got a big outer circle of sarsen stones. That's the ones you see on all of the, yeah. the kind of the iconic images. And then inside that, there's a, a horseshoe-shaped arrangement of really, really big, um, they call them trilithons. Those are basically where you've got two sarsen uprights with a, a lintel stone across the top of them, looking a bit like an enormous doorway. And there's five of these arranged in a horseshoe shape in the middle. And it was one of these that had fallen over. So they decided, you know, so rather than having just a pile of large boulders in the middle of the monument, they would 
uh, re-erect these stones. And during the course of doing that, they discovered that there was a, a big crack running through the length of one of the, the big sarsen stones. And they were really concerned that if they raised it, it might fall over again. Um, so they uh, decided they were going to pin the stone. Um, we wouldn't do this sort of thing nowadays. We'd probably leave it lying on the floor. But they, they raised the stone vertically, and then they drilled three horizontal holes through the stone. Um, and they didn't just drill them out. They, they extracted the stone as a core from each of the holes. And then they put metal rods through the, the holes and pinned them with metal bolts. A bit like you do with um, the wall of a house, if you were concerned that it was bowing, you would pin it. Um, and then they plugged the holes with sarsen. And, and one of the, the members of the drilling team, a, a man called Robert Phillips, was, was on site. And he worked for the company that did the, the drilling. Um, and at the end of this work, he was given um, custody of one of the cores. Um, uh, and, and he took it back to his office. So basically it was given to the company and he, he had it hanging on a wall in his office until the mid 1970s right. in a perspex tube, mm -hmm. um, along with a nice watercolor of the, the grilling work being done. Um, and then when he retired, he was given permission to take it with him. Um, and I'm assuming nobody else at the company was involved in that work. So he took it to the United States with him. Right. Um, and it moved around. He lived in four places around the States. And this Perspex tube with this cylinder of rock <laughs> moved around with him. And then in uh, 2018, um, and he was approaching his 20th birthday at this time, um, he asked his sons to get in touch with English Heritage. They're the people that manage Stonehenge to say, well, I've got this piece of Stonehenge. Would you like it back? Um, and I don't know why. I mean, I'm guessing it's from talking to um, one of his sons. It's a, it's a bit like it's, a, it's a, an old man tidying up his business, yeah. you know, doing clearing up affairs and, and, and thinking, well, actually, you know, this really could do with going back. So he arranged for um, um, it to be returned to English Heritage. And, and I got a, um, an email in 2018 saying, this piece of core has been returned, or this whole core has been returned. Would you like to have a look at it? And, and I nearly bit their hands off at that. Um, <laughs> we were already doing work at Stonehenge at the time, and this was, oh, wow. um, we'd already started this particular project, but what we were lacking was the um, ability to see the inside stone. So the, the, the problem with Stonehenge is it's, it's sat for four and a half thousand years, and those stones have been weathering in all that time. They've been exposed to the elements, and uh, the surface chemistry is now a little bit different because minerals would have been weathered away. And really for this sort of sourcing or provenancing work, what you want is to be able to compare fresh stone with other fresh stone. So um, having access to this um, core gave us, you know, an absolutely unique opportunity to um, analyze a piece of fresh stone from right in the middle of one of these enormous sarsens and we could then compare the chemistry of that with fresh rock from areas of sarsen from from other parts of the country so we overcome all the problems to do with weathering by doing that incredible story that's just been carted around parts of the united states what was the feeling like when that email dropped i mean that must have been quite special <laughs> <laughs> well it was a bit of a um it was interesting because the initial opening line of the email was was basically um i understand 
that you, you're working on a project at Stonehenge at the moment. The first thing I thought was, oh my goodness, what have we done wrong? <laughs> yeah, <but. laughs> um, have we done something awful? You know? um, and then I read on further and you're like, oh my goodness. Um, because the, there are, there's, there's lumps of Stonehenge in museums all over Britain. Um, but what we don't know with any of them, so these are pieces that have been excavated at the site. Um, but what we don't know with any of them is which stone they came from. So they're just a lump of rock that could or might, you know, may or may not have been actually from one of the sarsen stones. So this was a really, you know, kind of a once in a, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to actually look at um, something you know exactly, you can put your finger on whereabouts exactly it came from um, on one of the the stones because um, I mean getting understandably I hope getting permission to sample at Stonehenge um, is impossible it's a world heritage site it's a scheduled monument it's got the highest level of protection of you know pretty much any heritage site in Britain um, and they're not overly keen on you taking a chisel and a geological hammer um, to it so um, you know it was a it was a real um, special opportunity to be able to analyse that material and, and, and quite a, um, a pressured opportunity as well actually because you think well we've got this one shot here um, we've got we've been given permission to sample we only took a very small piece of it it was only about seven centimetres long that we were able to analyse so we, we took this seven centimetre piece and we cut it in half lengthways so English Heritage retained one half of a cylinder if you want to think of it that way we analyse the other, but we were very much like, well, this is it. This is our one shot. If we muck this up, we're not going to get another go at this. So it was a real, you know, then seeing that you get results that actually um, match areas was was amazing. Mm. I can sort of in, imagine the team uh, looking at that stone and putting it away so safely every night when you when you're all on your way home. It's just like this this tiny piece of stone, which is uh, just, it's just, it's just a, it must be a strange and kind of, um, I guess you, you knew you were on the verge of, you, you, this is now the point, it's the missing piece for you to actually be able to do this research, which would, be, would have been a very exciting moment for you and your team, I imagine. What, what sort, of, um, sort of equipment and research techniques did you need to analyze this thing? Yeah, so, so what we've done, you're absolutely right about it being, you know, locking it away. So, I mean, we had it, we had it locked up securely at Brighton. Um, I was quite, you know, we took it to the, um, well, it went to the University of Bristol first, where it was cut in half, and then it came back to Brighton, and then it went to the Open University, where the samples were cut. Um, it went to British Geological Survey to be scanned, so we did um, CT scanning of it, you know, the sort of things you do for brain scanning, so this little bit of rock was... Um, <laughs> CT scan so that we could see all the porosity inside it and see if there were any uh, structures in it. Um, it was scanned using some of the highest tech chemical scanners um, at British Geological Survey. Um, I'm thinking, what else has happened to it? It's been to the Natural History Museum um, where it's been put under a scanning electron microscope so you can look at it in ludicrous detail to get an idea of what the, the cement types are and how those different cements formed um, is probably probably the probably the most analyzed piece of rock outside a lump of moon rock i would imagine at the moment i mean we've we've teamwork with all sorts of partners we've been able to throw every single you know conceivable high-tech approach to this um, and partly because we're quite 
we're, we think it's quite important that all of this data is there in the public domain and it's and it's archived properly so that people in the future if they want to look at the, the chemistry or the mineralogy or the internal structure they've got access to all of those uh, data sets so we're still doing work on this particular piece of stone um, but once we're done we're going to make sure it all gets properly archived and documented um, so it's there as a, as a legacy as well because it's, a, it's an important little bit of rock um, mm. potentially for archaeologists for geologists uh, uh, for whoever yeah so what's the research you're doing from here then what we've published so far is very much around the the source of the stone mm. so that was really using a subset of the data that was the the real high, high resolution geochemical data that we've used there um, what we're going to publish next is a, a paper purely about the core itself so very much describing the material talking about how it would have formed um, and its mineralogy and its, its wider chemistry and structure and so on so really more of a, a study of, of what Stonehenge is built from mm -hmm. um, rather than necessarily than whereabouts it came from great yeah um, was, has Stonehenge been something that you've been interested for in for a long time is it something that is it something that you came across or is it something that you chased oh well it's it's i mean i suppose i've you know i mean it's like i guess like anybody living in in england you kind of known about stonehenge mm. haven't you all your life pretty much i've got photographs somewhere of me aged i must have been about five mm -hmm. sitting with my mum with a flask of tea on one of the stones in stonehenge because it used to be a place because there were no fences when i was a child and right it was a stopping off point on holiday yeah. uh, so we used to you know we used to pop in to pop into Stonehenge and sit and have our lunch there mm -hmm. um, so I've kind of known about it you know all the time and been fascinated by it and I, but I guess in a sense when I sort of thought about how we might apply what we'd already found out about Silcrete to Stonehenge mm -hmm. I guess then in a sense that was something that I then I kind of started to I wouldn't use the word chase but but what I started to do was talk to archaeologists who worked in that area. So part of our team that, that we work with are um, Tim Darnville, who's at the University of Bournemouth, and Mike Parker-Pearson, who's at UCL. And they're probably two of the world authorities on, on Stonehenge. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, we're working with, you know, the best people to do the job, really. Um, and then at Brighton, we've got, you know, and um, my colleague, Jake Chibarovsky, who teaches on our earth science degrees, who's a phenomenal geochemist, absolutely brilliant. Um, and then George Osmaniartis, who's a, a physical geographer, but is a, um, an amazing statistician um, and really, really good at programming and, and um, using um, computer programs that I don't even begin to understand to do in-depth statistical analysis. So, yeah. so actually, I think for part of this, it was, you know, spotting a possible problem, but then assembling a, the, the best possible people mm. that you could use to, to work with to solve this problem. And the great thing, yeah, we've got some of those at Brighton, and then we're able to work with real-world leading archaeologists who work at Stonehenge. Yeah. I mean, it, like we said earlier on, it did receive media attention around the world. Um, did you expect that? Or do you think, did you expect it? Because it, it's one of those sites which is just so fascinating to, to people around the world. I mean, it's not one of these seven wonders of the world, but it has been a finalist to be one. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's known worldwide and, and it's one of those just fascinating places where 
I guess people just don't know how it got there. And it's, that's, it's been there for such a long time, like the pyramids or something. And it really captures, it, ca- it really captures the imagination. I, th- I think it does. I mean, cause we've got, um, we had an awful lot of support from English heritage during this work and, and they were absolutely amazing in giving us site access. I mean, they even arranged for scaffolding so that we could do analyses of the lintel stones as part of our work. So we were there at, you know, the crack of dawn up a scaffold tower doing analyses. Um, but they basically said, you know, yeah, be prepared for this because, um, they had it listed, I mean, where the Sarsen stones come from, they had listed as one of their big six questions about Stonehenge. So they already regarded it as a really important thing for, for them to understand. And when we said, well, we think we found it out, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they were saying, yeah, okay, brace yourself, because anything to do with Stonehenge gets lots of coverage, but because it was a really important question that, you know, people have been thinking about it for four or five hundred years, whereabouts these stones come from. They were preparing us for it to be relatively big news. Um, I think I realised it was big news when we found out that we had the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 and Reuters all wanting to film us. And you're like, ah, okay, <laughs> yeah, this is quite... This is quite big. And then after that, I mean, I think on the day that the, the, the paper was published, I mean, it, it, it really was, it was quite, um, it was quite silly, really, the amount of um, coverage. It was, I mean, fantastic for the university because, you know, every single press article mentions the university. So I was really pleased that, you know, Brighton gets a good, <laughs> a good profile out of that. But I have, I mean, I've got relatives who live in Wollongong in Southeast Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made, page four or something like that of their no- local newspaper um Great. it was on the the main front page of, of newspapers in athens it was all rather strange really that you know yeah it is it's just this i think it's a it's a it's a monument that that yeah and it is partly because of the the, the air of mystery about it because yeah. we still don't quite know what it was for um we know a huge amount about stonehenge way more than we know about other Neolithic monuments because it's been a, a site where so much um, research has been done but we're still trying to get to the grips of the, the why mm. and I think that's what people really like still I think that's why it captures people. Yeah you must feel incredibly proud though to you like you just said hundreds of years of of research and wondering you know some of the big answers to these questions um, to have been part of that team to have done that that that, that means you go down in history so that's there uh, and I don't want to <laughs> don't build you up too much but it does mean that your name's going to be attached to that so that's that's quite a proud moment surely no it's fantastic i mean it's 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 kind of it's not why you go into academia i have no. to say mm-hmm. um because i mean my my real desire has been to do that you know it's, it's doing the background science that helps you to answer questions like this mm. because without having done all the background work about the properties and the chemistry of silkrete you wouldn't be able to do this this kind of thing um but when you do get when you do get the opportunity to to address a question like that and come up with an answer i mean it's amazing it's absolutely fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. um and i think for everybody on the team everybody was excited by it mm. um um and we you know as i say we were we were really really pleased i mean we pitched it uh, um so it was published in science advances which is one of the biggest journals international journals in the world so um the fact that they were you know as keen to see it published in, in somewhere like that um was a real you know it's a real privilege yeah um 
let's move on to um, some of your research and um, and teaching on climate change, historical climate change. Um, so historical climate change, can you explain that research that you look into? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is going to sound completely different and you're going to be thinking, <laughs> well, how on earth do you get from doing work on rocks in desert through to looking at historical climatology? There is actually a very good link in the sense that when I was doing my, my PhD work, so I said earlier on that I was looking at um, fossil drainage, so ancient drainage systems in, in the Kalahari. One of the things that I looked at were, were the, the rocks that were associated with these drainage systems, and that's where the link into silcretes came in. But the other thing that I did, I was trying to figure out when these drainage systems might have dried up. So I started reading lots of um, historical accounts of the Kalahari, so written by really early travellers, written by missionaries, written by people like David Livingstone when he was travelling around in um, southern Africa. And um, a lot of these people exploring the Kalahari crossed these valleys. And you can tell pretty clearly whereabouts they were because they wrote really clear references. So I started off you know, looking at re reading these historical sources and thinking, actually, you can tell quite a lot about environmental change from these sources. And then, I mean, as with a lot of research, there's, a, there's an element of luck. So with the Stonehenge work, I mean, it was luck that that core came back at the time when it did, right in the middle of when we were doing a piece of work there. It was, it was luck that I was um, able to meet up, I was contacted by a, a colleague at the University of Liverpool, Georgina Enfield, who I still do work with, who's a historical uh, geographer. And she said, oh, I've seen your work about, you know, the... the evolution of these dry valleys and what, how you can use documentary sources. She said, are there any archives relating to that particular time period? Um, and we sort of said, I said, yeah, well, we'll have a look. Let's try and find out. And we found huge missionary archives in London um, and got a small grant and then did some work. And I guess the rest, well, we'll say the rest, rest is history, but that would be a bit, a bit cheesy. But what we were able to, to do was, was really reading historical accounts to see what people say about the weather. So, you know, the Brits are, are obsessed with the weather. 19th century missionaries in Botswana were equally obsessed with the weather, probably even more so because they relied on the weather to grow their food. The methods that we've used are really, I suppose, they're ways of analysing what people write to then try to unravel what it's saying about past climate. So what we could do was bolt together the historical record with the instrumental record and then lo and behold you can start looking at how climate has changed over much much longer um, time periods and, and then here you are teaching on a module which is um, you know a huge talking point especially I imagine among some of the students that are now coming through and starting uh, with you a lot more engaged in this in the climate crisis in general which we'll come to in a moment I think but when you look back then at how climate change over the hundreds thousands of years and then you look at the current situation now how much does that worry you yeah no i think it's i think it's a, it, it should be a really big source of concern because what we now have a really good handle on is just how rapidly and how much higher temperatures are than they should be given the um the timing within a sort of a long-term cycles of climate change that we know we're in. So I've got, I suppose I've got the advantage that I've got a very long view of climate change through yeah. this sort of looking at Ice Age Earth on, and the, the module that we teach on Ice Age Earth, where we, we look back over tens to hundreds of thousands of years. 
And the thing that we know from that is that really for the last kind of 500 years or so, the earth really should be getting cooler. So the earth's climate is partly controlled by how it orbits the sun. Um, and what we know from that is that the, the, you know, the radiation receipt that the, the earth gets from the sun for the last 500 or so years should be slowly cyclically reducing. We should be getting colder. We ought to be heading into the early stages of another ice age now. But what we've seen in the last 100 years, maybe even less than that, has been an incredibly rapid rise in temperature to the point now where we're warmer than we have been certainly in the last thousand years um, and certainly way way warmer than we we should be um, and we don't have examples in, in earth history of where we warmed that quickly um, so we don't know what's going to happen as a result as a result of yeah. that we're kind of into this we've done we've done this really really big uncontrolled experiment with our climate um, you know, it's like, let's pump loads of carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere without necessarily knowing um, what's going to happen. And we don't have, you know, we, we often refer to analogues in, in you know, history to, to tell us maybe what might happen. That's why I, I think people ought to be concerned, because we just yeah. don't know what's going to happen as a result of this. Mm. And, and it I sounds agree. very gloomy. Well, I mean, we all know we've got to make changes, but then we don't all know it because I've also read that you, you know you use this your the climate change module to consider the views of of uh, skeptics as well. But with you, with all your knowledge of the <laughs> thousands of years of how it's mapped out, how do you use that as a part of your module? I think I mean I'm I'm really keen. It's interesting. Students really don't like to be exposed to the views of climate skeptics because. When you're doing um, A-level or courses prior to university, climate change is a fairly black and white thing. I think the way it's often taught is that it's happening and, and you don't often hear dissenting voices. Um, and I think it's really important to, to hear dissenting voices, but, but I think more than anything is to um, understand the grounds on which they are dissenting. So actually understanding why climate skeptics say they think, say that the things they do, I think is really interesting. And, and there are some things that it actually, what, what climate skeptics say really, um, to a certain extent, exposes weaknesses in climate change arguments. So for example, they, they, they point out that um, the network of um, meteorological stations that we use to you know, get our background understanding of what climate has been like, um, is really very good and it's absolutely true so if you, you look in the United States I mean what you really want is you want to know that what you're measuring is being measured reliably so if you're measuring temperature yeah. you really want to know the instruments are right and they've, they've been recording accurately over the whole period of time that they've been measuring um, and there are there are weather stations in the United States where they started off in fields and they're now in the middle of university campuses and they're, they're now surrounded by concrete, whereas before they, they were in fields. And, and they haven't moved, but the impact of that will be that they cause a, a local warming in that particular area. And that's really, that sort of thing has been exposed. So in a sense, it's a good thing, because what climate skeptics have done, have exposed those sorts of issues. Mm. And then climatologists can come along and say, actually, you're right, we need to correct for those and remove those sites where... Um, there might be problems and and when they've done that they still show the same warming trend mm. um so yeah 
you know, skeptics, I think, have their uses because what they do is, is if you've got people who are really critical, they expose issues. And what you can then do is see, is this a real issue? Oh, it is. Can we correct for it? And then that improves the science. So I guess that's the spirit that I teach about climate skeptics in is to, you know, what are the issues? What are they picking out? What are, the, what are they identifying as problems? And then can we actually tackle those problems? Yeah, it's quite embedded, though, isn't it? Sometimes the skeptics. I mean, I don't know if you've watched. Um, it's really interesting watching very recently on the BBC the rise of the Murdoch dynasty. And I think the, the mm. it, it, I don't know if you've seen that, but the fine in the final episode, one of the um, one of the final clips is is of Rupert Murdoch talking about his uh, climate change scepticism. So does that kind of come into the module as well? Well, we, we don't necessarily teach exactly about the media and climate change within the module, um, but it, that's exactly a topic that a number of students are interested in. So over the years, I've supervised two or three really, really good dissertations where students take that approach and do um, media analyses. So they look for, you know, look at runs of um, newspaper articles in different different uh, news sources, mm. see if there is evidence for uh, skepticism coming out. So, you know, looking to see are the newspapers reporting as, um, as if climate change is um, a natural thing or whether it's anthropogenic. Mm. Um, and certainly there are different news sources have different levels of that sort of um i wouldn't say bias but that sort of view coming in it's mm -hmm. more so in some of the u.s media so for example i had a student who did an analysis of, of fox news and their website and fox news definitely has more emphasis on natural climate variability over uh human induced changes and and conveniently that's also the news channel where um the president of the United States obtains much of his news from. So it's not surprising that, that, you know, the media have a big influence. They really shape public opinion on these yeah. things. But climate change is quite a difficult thing to report on. It's not an easy thing to, you know, um, convey to the public because it's quite complex and there's lots of uncertainties. I'm touching it just now, but how have you seen students change in their approach to climate change over the years that you've taught? And from the outside, it, seems to be taken a lot more seriously by um, a younger generation. No, definitely. And I think it always has done. I think we've always, ever since, I mean, I've been at Brighton since 1993. When I started, we only ran the environmental sciences course. So I think I've been used to students with real, um, if you want to call it green interests all the time. And I think Brighton attracts that kind of student. Mm. I think that, you know, there's a, with the, um, you know, the strong emphasis on green politics in the city and with, you know, people like Caroline Lucas being very prominent um, advocates for um, greener technologies and real taking, taking things like climate change seriously. I think we, we, we seem to um, attract students who are really interested in that, which is great. Um, I guess what I try to make sure is, is that they are Try to make sure that they're critical of it as well. Mm. So, so not coming in with a with a you know with a completely blinkered climate change is happening, yeah, but actually being really critical about the science behind it and understanding what the issues are. Mm. Yeah, that must hearten you as well. I, I imagine though that people are coming in with like a lot more of a passion and a you know to, to yeah, to I think so. I mean, it is, I mean, I, I think I'm sh I'm sure as any other person you'll talk to it really makes a big difference if students are committed and they're passionate in what they're mm. what they're studying 
and it's nice on a on a module like climate change where you can see that students are really genuinely interested and they're reading around the subject and they're ready to question you and they're ready to put their views in and yeah it's great it's really really good it's um it's challenging because obviously every single year you have to do huge wholesale updates to your teaching materials because it's such a quickly moving yeah. <laughs> area of science but that's brilliant because at least you know what you're teaching is absolutely current which, yeah which is great so yeah, yeah. Keeps you fast, moving, fast moving field, field yeah, yeah. Just rounding off this um, very quickly, at the start of this bit of the conversation, we talked about, I asked you how it much it concerns you and, you know, clearly giving the data that shows that it's um, reasons why we should all be you know, pretty concerned. But do you think in some ways, I don't know, a, a change of um, behavior maybe during the pandemic? Um, I mean, there aren't any real positives to uh, a pandemic like, like this, but we have all changed the way that we've, a lot of people have changed the way that we live and the way to behave and the way we get to and from places, or whether we need to make that car journey. Maybe that means the carbon footprint won't be so big going forward. Do you think those would be permanent changes for some, or do you think people will just go back to their old normal i mean i'm just thinking here in brighton we've got these new cycle lanes and motorists are already complaining about how slow the traffic is on the seafront so um well yeah i know exactly i mean i think behavioral change is quite a is is a tricky thing to maintain um i think we've all i mean i think there's some real real if you can think of it in that way there's some real positives out of the, the pandemic in the sense that we're doing now an awful lot more of our our meetings and our communication are being done electronically. Mm. And I think that's a real bonus. And we've already seen during the course of the pandemic that air quality has improved in major cities. And also, if you look globally at the figures for CO2 emissions, they've dropped. They're starting to creep up again now in, in mm. various parts of the world. But um, yeah, if you, stop, if you stop industry and you stop people using fossil fuels to drive transport, yeah, you can, you can lower CO2 levels. Um, nowhere near to the level that we, we need to, um, but you can make really, really big changes. Um, I mean, my, my feeling keep those sorts of changes going is if now um, government and organisations embed some of those benefits into their general practice. So, you know, we need to, we need to, you know, in, um, improve public transport I mean, the trouble has been there's been a bit of a mistrust over public transport because people have been very concerned about you know the risk of disease and, and transmission um in there but you know you would really hope that we can we can cut down on car use and people can see that walking and cycling is a um a better option and also rather than you know having to i can think of examples where big big international conferences have been cancelled um, and what that means is that, you know, 15,000 people aren't flying to Vienna <laughs> from all around the world, for example, you know, yeah. to, to go to a conference and they can, they can do a very similar thing online. Not quite the same, you know, a different model is possible. Um, it's been um, um, really great speaking to you um, about all these topics. I think we could have talked for a, a long time about uh, quite a few of them, but um conscious taking up a bit too much of your time at the end of each podcast we we ask some questions away from your work this is how we wrap up every podcast so sort of a bit of a quick fire round really i guess so first of all what advice would you give to your younger self cool that's a nice question um probably to stick at it i think would be the best best advice that i could give so i mean i think certainly during my career um 
the work at Stonehenge is an example. I think we tried, we had four goes at trying to get funding for that work um, through some really big funding agencies. And they, they weren't, you know, they weren't wearing it. Um, but my feeling was, no, this is a good idea. Don't give up on this, stick at it. So, I mean, that would be, certainly would be um, advice would be, yeah, if you've got a good idea, run with it. Um, if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, you don't necessarily have to have the skills to do it. What would it be? Well, I think we've, we've, we've touched on that earlier on, which is, I think, something I'd be really interested in. And it might sound rather strange from someone with a, with a science background, but I'd love to do media studies. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fascinating to do media studies. And I think partly because what we've learned through this pandemic is, is the way that media can be used and I'm really fascinated in the power of media um, to shape opinions Um, so I think actually understanding a bit more about about how journalists work and how the media uh, operate would be really really interesting Mm, definitely if you haven't watched that documentary watch it if you anyone anyone listening to this do watch the rise of the Murdoch dynasty on on BBC it's uh, it's a fascinating watch I think the other thing I would say is I mean because we've got in terms of um media studies if people are interested in climate change and media mm-hmm. that's a real research strength at brighton and i think you know it's something that i think is real you know there's a huge potential there mm. can you pick a favorite place in sussex i used to live in brighton hove i mean since i've since i've been working at the university i've lived in hove and i've lived in um the five ways area in, in brighton and i love living in brighton one of the best things I ever did was move out of Brighton, though. So as much as I love the city, I love to now be able to go back there and visit. Um, yeah. And I'm now more of a, a rural Sussex person. And and I would actually say, get away from the, the chalklands, get away from the coast and get into the Weald. So into the slightly more northern parts of the county where the landscape's a bit more varied, um, and, and um, yeah, I would say, you know, head a little bit north mm. rather than necessarily sticking to the coast because Sussex has got a huge amount of beautiful places to explore beyond the coastline. Mm. Um, if you could give visitors to Brighton and the area uh, a tip or something to do or experience on a, on a weekend uh, away, perhaps, what would you suggest they do? Ooh, well, I think my, my big depends on what time of year people are in Brighton. But I mean, what I would say is if they get the opportunity to make sure they're around at the time of the year when the Brighton Festival runs, if it's if it runs again, hopefully it will <laughs> once uh, the world madness is over and we're back to whatever normal becomes. Um, because Brighton during festival months, absolutely fantastic. And it has a, has a, a real buzz about the place. So I would say, you know, just go and immerse themselves in, particularly in some of the fringe stuff. Um, and the other time of year, depending again when they're on, it's not necessarily an easy time to be down, but it's if, you, if you can get down around, around Pride Weekend in August, Brighton's amazing during Pride Weekend. Um, there's such a buzz around the city. So again, I think it's trying to, trying to coincide with some, you know, some big events there. But I think you know, between those two, they really sort of show, I think, the, the unique flavour of what Brighton's like as a city. And tell us something interesting about you, which a lot of people may not know. <laughs> Ooh, now that's a good question as well. Uh, I cook a mean curry. How's that? Oh, yeah. What kind of curry? Oh, you, you name it, I'll have a go at. But I, I, okay. at the moment, this, the, the great thing about lockdown has been, has been vegetable gardening. And I've got mm. the biggest crop of chilies this year that I've ever managed to grow. So I'm really looking forward to making some evil 
<laughs> spicy things. So are you, yeah, are you, are you in a sort of uh, camp that is that the spicier the curry, the better the curry? Got to have a good flavour to it. So I don't mind. I like I like heat in a curry, but you've got to be able to taste it. So yeah. so I'm growing nice naga chilies at the moment, and they've got the most beautiful flavour as well as being evil. So. <laughs> Evil and beautiful at the same time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like a fatale yeah. of chilies. Um, <laughs> if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party, past or present, who would they be and why? Two immediately spring to mind. Um, I'm quite a, uh, I'm a big music fan and I've, I've um, grown up over the years. Probably the, fir- the first person I ever saw in concert live was Peter Gabriel. And I'm probably people who are young probably may not have even heard of Peter Gabriel. But he did a huge amount, particularly for what we now call world music. So he brought a huge array of international artists, African artists, Latin American artists to the, the World Forum. And people may have heard of things like WOMAD Festival. I'd love to meet Peter Gabriel. I mean, but I don't know what I'd talk to him about because I'd probably have a major fanboy moment, and, you know, be completely speechless. But it would be fascinating to speak to him about you know, his life and, and his travels more than anything, finding out where he's been and what, what influences him. Um, so, yeah, Peter Gabriel would be one. Um, probably a second one that would be, would be interesting, maybe it's a little bit more of an obvious thing, but it would be great to have a chat to Barack Obama as well. I think that Peter Gabriel and Barack Obama would have quite an interesting playoff in terms of, of conversations. But I just think that, you know, I'd love to know how someone has gone through you know, what he's been through and particularly the level of flack that's been thrown at him in the US from opposition. How on earth you you managed to carry on like that and maintain your dignity and be a, a real statesman whilst, um, you know, everybody's at you and you're being criticised. I think it'd be really interesting to, to do. I really, you know, I think I admire him. I admire his politics, but I think I also admire the way that, that he conducts himself. And one more? Um, the third one's really difficult. Um, I probably want to go back in history. I mentioned earlier on, I think, I'd be, I think it would be really interesting to, to meet some of these figures that I've read about in some of my historical work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, an obvious one would be somebody like, somebody like David Livingstone, actually. I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea of what on earth motivates people to travel in places where there aren't roads and you don't know where you're going. Um, you know, there's there's literally there there are no maps. You're making maps as you go through, um, and it would be I think it'd be really interesting to find out what motivates those sorts of people, and um, but also what was the experience like? Because I'd imagine that it would be seriously grim at times, um, and so I'm fascinated what you know what drives people to to have that level of determination. I mean, I think I get the impression he was a fairly unpleasant person as well, actually, from what I've read. So it'd be quite interesting to find out what he's like over dinner. Yeah. Good, three good guests. That Professor David Nash, thank you so much for your time. Um, congratulations about the Stonehenge research. We're really looking forward to hearing more in the coming years as well. Really great stuff. Um, that's it for this week's podcast. But please do like, subscribe and take a look back at our back catalogue for more interviews. There's something there for everyone. Thanks for listening.